Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Right now, Washington is swirling with UFO chatter, as many are eagerly awaiting an intelligence report that's supposed to be due out sometime in June. Top senators, Pentagon insiders, and former CIA directors have all been weighing in on the subject, but that hasn't always been the case. UFO talk usually got you in trouble or got you strange looks, but we're seeing more leaked video and reports from pilots who are trained to be out in the field seeing a lot of crazy stuff that they can't explain. For more on how UFO sightings went from jokes to national security concern, we'll speak to Mike Rosenwald, reporter at The Washington Post. A lot of this really dates back to sort of the mid-1990s. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid is invited by a friend to go to this academic conference on UFOs. And he's, he's intrigued. He's from Nevada. That's where Area 51 is. And he keeps an interest in this going for several years. And then another friend approaches him who has a real healthy interest in UFOs. And he's got a ranch in Utah, apparently, where lots of weird paranormal things happen. And he apparently gets a letter from some kind of intelligence official saying, hey, we want to check out your ranch. And then Reed finally says, you know, we should do something on this. And so he calls in some of his colleagues to a secure classified room at the Capitol. And he says, you know, he wants to get some money appropriated to the Pentagon so they can study this. And he gets $22 million, which is, you know, obviously a drop in the bucket when it comes to Pentagon funding. But they established this group internally to look at it. And they begin collecting a series of reports from military pilots about these strange objects that they are seeing, which, you know, in the sky and and on radar, which have a lot more capability than they have. And eventually, a few years ago, a few of these videos leak out. The Pentagon confirms them and more and more people start to get interested in this. And, And this draws the attention of former CIA directors who come out and publicly say, hey, we don't know what this stuff is. It's weird. (laughs) <laughs> we got to figure out what it is. Right. And then, incredibly, as part of uh, former President Trump's pandemic relief package and appropriations bill, the Senate Intelligence Committee, led by Democrat Mark Warner from Virginia, gets a provision in there basically saying that the director of national intelligence needs to coordinate with the Pentagon and release a report in 180 days, which is due next month, detailing everything, every intelligence agency right down to the FBI, detailing what they have on these unidentified flying objects. And from Mark Warner and and from Marco Rubio, the the vice chair of this committee, they have couched this in national security terms. It's like, hey, there are these things flying around in the sky that are doing these incredible things. We don't know what the heck they are. What if it's Russia? What if it's China? What if it really is something extraterrestrial? Everybody's pinning this now into a national security thing. What if it is another uh, country with some new technology? And so this is where the conversation is going. So I know people get hyped up about UFOs and aliens, but that's probably not what we're going to be hearing about when this report eventually comes out. We're going to be hearing about national security implications with all of this. Yeah, that's true. Though some former CIA directors have said some really eyebrow-raising things. John Brennan, (laughs) 
John Brennan, who was a very obviously well-respected uh, intelligent, career intelligence official and ran the CIA, he says that we shouldn't just assume that we're living here in this world, whatever this world is, alone. Maybe there is something out there that needs to be explained. Yeah, I think one of his so quotes, it, yeah. it's a bit presumptuous and arrogant for us to believe that there's no other form of life anywhere in the universe. And he says some of this stuff that we're looking at could come from a different form of life. You know, that right there, obviously he's uh, privy to knowledge that we don't have. And that really starts sending people's heads spinning with all of this stuff. It really does. And and it's, it's interesting that we've had this pop cultural thing for so long, but in other countries, and I'm, and I'm hearing from many people in other countries today, these things aren't treated, you know, as a political ticket to the loony bin, as, as I called it. They're taken seriously in, in many other countries in ways that we haven't been taking it seriously. There's not just UFO settings in the United States. These, these settings are everywhere. And, that, um, and, that and was, there, there are things that can't be explained, you know, but other countries treat it as, in a different way. Are we seeing these types of reports from uh, military personnel in other countries? Because if it was just happening here, then maybe that leads more to saying it could be another country infiltrating our airspace. But if it's happening everywhere, then maybe something larger could be at play. The UK has had similar UFO task forces. There's been other countries that have looked into it. South America, people are hoping that as, as part of this report that is supposed to come out from the government, that there will also be references to perhaps other intelligence gathered between friendly countries on this topic. So, you know, there's a lot of hope behind this this report that's supposed to come out. And one of those things is what do other countries know and what have they shared with our intelligence community? Michael Rosenwald, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. This past week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a big tech bill aimed at cracking down on social media giants like Facebook and Twitter for deplatforming conservatives. The bill makes it illegal to remove candidates for office from their social media in the lead up to an election. It also makes it easier for the Florida Attorney General and individuals to sue big tech if they feel they've been deplatformed unfairly. This bill will most likely be challenged in court, so we'll see how all that plays out. For more on this, we'll speak to Anna Ceballos, reporter at the Miami Herald. Governor Ron DeSantis has been talking about this for a few months now. He started making a big deal about this issue back in January when he was talking to a group of conservatives in Texas. Um, And then he asked lawmakers to really crack down on these big tech companies, which, you know, there is bipartisan support that maybe these companies are too big. But what there is no bipartisan consensus or there are still questions and concerns about first of all can Florida even do this and second of all what is the intent and the motivation behind this proposal and like you said you know the the, the proposal does take aim at social media companies who do plot uh, political candidates for either statewide office or local offices and it allows these candidates if they are removed for whatever type of content they post that violates the terms of agreement for those companies. They can uh, seek compensation from the company and sue them for up to $250,000 a day. Can they even do this? I mean, this is where a lot of the legal challenges are going to lie. Obviously, you're compelling speech onto private companies. You know, they have their terms of service. If you're breaking them, 
generally that's that's the rule. You're breaking it, they can deplatform you. So there's a lot of First Amendment stuff going on there. And then can they regulate these companies that operate across state lines just because it applies there in Florida? Would it mean that it applies somewhere else? These are where all the legal challenges are going to be stemming from. And, and then it, it is pretty narrow, I guess, in that sense that it is only for political candidates. It, it just doesn't open it up uh, to free speech for everybody, which is uh, something that a lot of conservatives feel that they're being targeted unfairly by these big tech companies. It does offer some uh, recourse for, for everyday Floridians, I guess you could say, but the toughest penalties or toughest provisions are in favor of candidates who are being deplatformed. But like you said, you know, there is still a lot of questions whether Florida will be able to enforce this. You know, there's language in the bill that says that this is the intent of the state, but it can't trump state law. And here what the state is saying is, you know, we deem it to not be good state. Ron DeSantis, as you mentioned, had been talking about it for some time now, especially after President Trump was taken off some of these platforms DeSantis himself, though, was kind of taken off a little bit, too. Uh, In April, he did some type of YouTube panel discussion. They removed that video because uh, they said it violated some of the misinformation policies that YouTube had. Right. That was a roundtable during the pandemic. It was in the the heat of the pandemic when there were all these discussions being held here in the state. He would would regularly hold roundtable discussions. And one of those, he invited some health experts who... um, you know, violated YouTube's COVID medical misinformation policies. And DeSantis defiantly held another discussion with the same experts a few months later. And he started promoting some smaller tech companies, like of the likes of Parler, if you will, right, that they're more favored by conservatives. And it's called, I believe, Rumble. It's a video platform that is more an alternative to YouTube. So we're seeing a trend of him just fighting pretty hard, not just with policy or attempts to, to create new policy that could trump state law or potentially act. But you're also seeing him act and just promoting other types of alternative media that he views as not silencing the conservative voices. I've had on some of your colleagues from the Miami Herald to talk about different things that the governor there is doing. He is a rising star in the Republican Party. A lot of people are saying he might run for 2024 for president if uh, former President Trump doesn't. So the question is, what does this type of action do for the national conversation? Are we expecting other states to pick this up? Because as I said in the beginning, you know, a lot of conservatives feel they're being targeted when it comes to free speech. Right. I mean, Florida always pegs himself as the leader in the nation, right? He, he, he's been using this bill as, uh, you know, this is the first in the nation and everyone's going to follow suit. We're, we're among, but there are other states that have been not quite like, Florida with censorship, but there are other states that have targeted internet companies because Congress has been pretty slow to act. Um, so we are seeing kind of, you know, state action for certain things. But I believe Florida is um, the first one to target censorship um, the way that it did in this bill. And, you know, it's one extra thing that he can take. He, he's expected to uh, you know, being good standing for re-election next year. He's a, a popular governor here in Florida. And, it, you know, there's a lot of things that he got done uh, during the regular legislative session that just ended in May. It's a 60-day session where he got this big tech uh, bill and he got an anti-riot bill. He got a voting bill. 
He got, um, you know, you just name it. I mean, he even got teacher bonuses for, for at least some, um, some teachers. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of things in his uh, legislative goodie bag, if you will, where he can just <laughs> pretty much take it to the road right. and you know, start promoting his agenda and say, hey, I got these things done. And these are issues that are really popular among the base of his supporters. And so you could argue that it's not only going to benefit him here for a reelection in Florida, but could potentially put him in a national scene and he takes to Fox scenes all the time. And he can raise that agenda at a national level and test the waters if he could potentially run for the White House. Anna Ceballos, reporter at the Miami Herald. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We have been seeing a lot of volatility with the cryptocurrency market lately in the past few weeks, especially for Bitcoin. China has been one of the key factors in these ups and downs. China recently took some actions that will likely ban all Bitcoin mining there pretty soon. About 75% of all Bitcoin mining currently happens in China. Last week, they also warned financial institutions not to participate in crypto transactions. For more on just one piece of the volatility in the crypto market, we'll speak to Tim Deschant, tech policy reporter at Ars Technica. The latest news comes out of a statement that was put forth by the Financial Stability and Development Committee. That's part of the state council there, which is kind of like their cabinet. And there they said basically almost verbatim that they were going to crack down on Bitcoin mining and trading. There are a number of reasons for that, but the one that they list first and foremost is financial stability. They kind of view it as a commodity as opposed to a currency. So they're worried about people gambling on that. So how much actual Bitcoin mining is done out there? Quite a bit. So the most recent estimate that I saw pegs it at about 75% happening within the country. So if all that processing power comes offline or even a portion of it, that's going to have a significant impact. You know, you mentioned kind of some of the concerns from the Chinese government when it comes to uh, the volatility of it and everything. They also have other concerns about money laundering, trafficking, smuggling, and even the energy use that it takes to do this. I've seen videos online of people, you know, kind of showing off their Bitcoin mining things. And some of them are huge warehouses even. And they get super loud because they're just a bunch of computers constantly running. Tell me a little bit about that, those concerns. That's a big, probably a big part of what China is concerned about, too, though they didn't state it at the top in the statement that they put out from the state council. It's something that they've floated time and again, again, because 75 percent of the mining is done within the country, especially in coal heavy regions like Inner Mongolia, where power is cheap because it's on cheaply mined coal. But as a result, you're seeing some Bitcoin facilities drawing down 50 megawatts, which is easily the amount of production that you'd see from a coal fired power plant. So I'm sure that pollution concerns are high on their list because China has one of the most energy intensive economies right now. And if they're going to reach their goal of hitting net zero by 2060 and having 75 percent of the world's Bitcoin processing happening within their borders does not make that look very likely. I always love the comparisons of this takes as much energy to run a whole country, basically. And the Bitcoin network demands so much energy that it uses as much power as the Netherlands does to maintain its normal operations. So when you hear things like that, you think, man, that is an outstanding output of energy that they're using. And Tesla figures into all of this stuff with Bitcoin as well. Earlier in the year, they said they were going to make a big investment in Bitcoin and allow purchases of Teslas with it. Then they took that back and cited the energy and carbon footprint as concerns about this. 
And you mentioned in your article too how the Bitcoin cost of a Model 3 and the carbon dioxide. Explain that to us a little bit. So if we were to just look at the actual production of a Tesla Model 3, it takes just under nine tons of carbon dioxide to produce that and operate it over its lifetime, assuming you're driving it about 100,000 miles. When Tesla announced that you could buy a Model 3 with Bitcoin, the amount of energy embodied within that Bitcoin purchase was about 400 tons. And when they canceled it, it was over 500 tons. So you're looking at carbon footprint that is vastly more significant in the purchase of it using Bitcoin than even just in the production of a car. In fact, it's more than the lifetime carbon cost of a fossil fuel powered vehicle. So from a marketing perspective, it didn't seem to make a lot of sense for Tesla to continue accepting Bitcoin. Though I should say they still hold quite a bit of Bitcoin as kind of a reserve currency of their own. So what does all of this do to Bitcoin, to the cryptocurrency market, As we start seeing China try to back out of some of this on multiple angles, regulations, who knows if the United States will try to put forward some type of regulations in the future as well. I mean, what does this do to the cryptocurrency market? As you said earlier, Bitcoin kind of foreshadows what happens in the rest of the market. You may start to see some splits uh, if Bitcoin gets a lot of attention paid to it. Maybe some of the others would split off and be able to navigate the waters a little bit differently. In terms of regulation, you're starting to see that in the U.S. The IRS announced that any transactions over $10,000 need to be reported. And several government agencies, Department of Justice, Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and the IRS are looking into suspect transactions that went through one Bitcoin exchange known as Binance. So you are starting to see things turn that way. In terms of like the mining and stuff like that happening within China, If that were to be shut down, chances are you're going to see those computers pop up somewhere else. They might appear in nearby countries like Mongolia or Kazakhstan, or they might be shipped out and sold elsewhere, possibly popping up in the United States. Um, The amount of money that these people have invested in the hardware is pretty significant, and I'm guessing they'd want to see some return on that. One last question on uh, China and all this, because we had also heard that they're trying to do some type of digital currency for themselves with their own dollar, the yuan. Um, uh, How does this figure into that? Well, it would certainly give them a window into what's happening with that currency in a way that they don't have right now with Bitcoin. Um, You know, Bitcoin isn't necessarily 100% anonymous. There are ways to track flows between wallets. And then when people go to cash that in um, for uh, currency like the dollar or the yuan, that's when you can start to see um, who's holding some of that. But um, they don't have nearly the access to it that they would have with other payment processing systems like Alipay within their country. So them rolling out the digital yuan, the idea there is that not only are they going to, you know, maybe limit some of the volatility that they're seeing in Bitcoin, um, but they're also going to get an idea of what's happening with that money, um, something they can't really see right now with Bitcoin. Tim Deshant, Tech Policy Reporter at Ars Technica. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.